Today, the gospel invites us to look at Jesus and to listen to him, to do what the prayer book calls beholding him, so that we can be changed into his likeness, can learn to see as we are seen and hear as we are heard. That's true every week, of course, but it's distinctively true today because we are given, in today's reading, the story of Jesus' transfiguration, the moment in which the fullness of his identity is revealed to the disciples and to us. Today's collect promises that as we behold Jesus, we become like him. And becoming like him, we begin to see more and more what he sees and hears, how he sees and hears. And these changes make all the difference, not only for us, but also, and more importantly, for others around us. In the Old Testament reading, we hear Elisha, the young prophet, quieting the prophets around him. Yes, I know the Lord will take my master away from me today. He says, be quiet. And he says this to them again and again. And then at the end of the story, we watch him as he watches Elijah ascend into heaven in a fiery chariot. The psalm for the day celebrates creation as goodness God has spoken. And it promises that this same God will speak yet again. He will not hold silence forever. And when he speaks, he will come to us wrapped in a consuming fire, a blinding light. In the New Testament reading, Paul insists we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Christ, whose face shines with God's goodness. And he promises us, that we can proclaim Christ because God has spoken his creative word in us. It is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, which we've just heard, Peter, James, and John ascend a high mountain apart with Jesus, no doubt to pray with him. Suddenly, the text says, he is transfigured before them. His body and his clothes radiate light. But this is not just any light. This is the uncreated light of the divine nature, God's essence. We have to know that this was not a curiosity or a spectacle. It's not like someone miraculously receiving a gold tooth it's not as if Jesus' skin merely glowed or shined. That would be a curiosity. That would be a spectacle. Thomas Aquinas says that what happened in this moment was Jesus' soul poured out into his body and overflowed it. And because the glory of his soul was the glory of his divinity, his body suddenly, miraculously revealed his essence, revealed his identity. There was, Aquinas says, a perfect clarity in this moment to his being. And the disciples were able to see this clarity, to see him with clarity, and to see how this clarity altered reality around them. The dead and gone, Elijah and Moses, are suddenly alive and present. And they are talking with Jesus, and Jesus is talking with them about what he is about to undergo, the suffering that awaits him. Even his clothes are taken up into this clarity. This is why Peter, James, and John are not impressed or intrigued. They are not curious. They are terrified. And Peter, at least, is so afraid for himself and for his friends 
that he cannot keep from speaking. Now, strikingly, at the end of Mark's Gospel, 16.8, three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, come to Jesus' tomb to anoint his body, even though they do not know how they are going to remove the stone. They come, and when they arrive, the stone has already been moved. An angel declares the good news to them. Jesus has risen from the dead, and you are to go and tell the other disciples, especially Peter, to meet him in Galilee. And there, Mark says, in the garden, these three women respond more or less exactly as the three men on the mountain had responded. This is the way Mark says it. They went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. On the mountain, the disciples see Jesus as he is in his fullness and are terrified, Peter at least is terrified, into speech. In the garden, the disciples do not see Jesus, but only the absence his fullness has left, and they are scared speechless. On the mountain, as Jesus is being transfigured, as his soul is overflowing into his body, Peter interrupts. He interrupts Moses and Elijah to say to Jesus, let us make three dwellings. But notice, he's met with silence. Jesus does not answer him. Moses and Elijah do not stop to respond. Instead, a cloud falls over them and overshadows them. This is the cloud of the presence, the cloud that led Israel in the wilderness. And from that cloud, the voice of the Father declares, This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to him. But the Son says nothing. The disciples are being called in this moment to attend to silence, to listen to what is being said in what is not being said, to let the experience sink in. They are suddenly alone with Jesus. The cloud lifts. Moses and Elijah cannot be seen. And they're there in the silence, listening. Jesus does not speak again to them until they are descending the mountain. And when he speaks, he does not offer a single word of explanation. All he says is that they must not tell anyone what they have seen and heard until he is raised from the dead until after resurrection. They surely are completely overwhelmed. At the peak of their experience, they were so afraid they spoke out of turn. Peter, at least, spoke out of turn and said what he did not understand. Now, as they come down from those heights, they have no way of understanding what is being said to them or why they are being asked not to speak. They, Mark tells us, question in themselves. And finally, they break out a strange, silly question. But they're unsure. They're unsettled. And they're left in that unsettledness. The problem with them is also the problem with us, I think. Driven by fears, fears so deep we don't even know they're ours. We don't even know how they're affecting us. We're silent when we need to speak and speak when we need to be silent. We're loud when we need to be quiet and quiet when we need to be loud. Or we speak at the right time, but in the wrong spirit. Or we hold our tongues in spite rather than in mercy. 
We fail others in this way every day, and they fail us. Every day, we suffer because others speak down to us or refuse to speak up for us. And every day, others suffer because we fail to speak up for them or because we speak down to them. Life and death, Scripture says, is in the tongue. But most of the time, what we give to others and what they give to us is simply death. Deadly silence, deadly noise. So the Spirit is always working, the Spirit of life is always working to teach us how to listen and how to talk, how to quiet down and how to speak up, how to do all of this life-givingly rather than death-dealingly. And one of the ways we learn is the Spirit teaches us in our practicing of silence and speech. In her book, Silence, a User's Guide, which should come with a warning label, Maggie Ross encourages us to lower ourselves into silence purposefully, regularly, both liturgically in worship and devotionally in the course of our daily lives. At its heart, she tells us, the practice of accepting silence is about learning to suspend judgment. Judgment of ourselves, judgment of others, judgment of God. Entering the silence, she says, means relinquishing tightly held fixed ideas. The person who is centered in silence exercises extreme caution, she says, and shows deep respect for the mystery of creation. And out of this cautious respect, we learn to notice over time what before simply escaped our attention. We learn to give our attention rather than simply have it captivated or not. And this ability, this capacity to give attention, in turn allows us to love God and love neighbor more fully, to love as we are loved, to give what we've received. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mention this often, says that one of the ways we serve others best is by what we do not say to them. The best way to care for them, he says, is often simply biting our tongues so that what has come to our minds does not slip out. This is especially true when what occurs to us to say is technically right. Like the prophets around Elisha in the Old Testament reading today, we sometimes think that knowing the truth is in itself permission to say whenever, however we like, what we think. But if the truth is not spoken in love, if it is not spoken in the spirit of intercession and compassion, if it's not spoken to bring life and healing, then it is not the truth that we speak, but a lie, even if it's technically accurate. And this is why God gracefully confronts us with mystery, to shock us into silence. One of the oldest Christian hymns, probably written in Jerusalem in the 300s, celebrates the Eucharist as the revelation of God. It draws perhaps on the story of the transfiguration and certainly on Isaiah's vision of God as the one high and lifted up in the temple and John the Revelator's vision of the throne of God while he's on the Isle of Patmos. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded for with blessing in his hand Christ our God to earth descendeth our full homage to demand. That's the opening stanza. At the Lord's table, then, we fall silent, or we are meant to fall silent, before the holy mysteries. We possess our bodies. We keep quiet. Our parents taught us this. 
I teach my kids this. Don't talk with food in your mouth. And that's especially true of the Eucharist. But the, silent God, the silence God wants for us is not always only a negation. There is also a pregnant silence he means for us. More often than not, in fact, we need to be quiet, not so we do not speak out of turn and bring harm to others, but because we need time to comprehend what has been spoken to us. This, I think, is why Jesus instructs the disciples not to share what they had witnessed until after the resurrection. He knew that the news of his resurrection would be good news only if they knew who he was, but that who he was would have meaning only once the passion had been fulfilled and he had been raised from the dead. In her book, A Short and Easy Method of Prayer, which seems harmless enough, but in fact landed her in prison as a suspected heretic, the French mystic Jean Guion says that inner silence, which is necessary for receiving the fullness of God, becomes possible only through the long-term practice of outer silences. Over time, she says, as we learn recollection and retirement, these are the terms she uses, we develop the skills necessary to unbusy ourselves, We learn how to quit thinking about what seems so pressing. We learn to gather our attention, which has been scattered in all directions by the cares of the day, and turn ourselves wholly toward God. And when we do this, Yon says, whether we ever realize it or not, God is granted access to our innermost being, to the heart of our heart, the deepest depths of our souls, And God works there as only God can work, healing what has been wounded and filling us up with life in ways we will never be able to bring to speech. So we need to let God quiet us down, and we need to learn to quiet ourselves, both outwardly and inwardly. We need to befriend silence, including the silence of God, because only if we do Can we learn how to listen in ways that allow us to hear as we are heard? For God, both silence and speech are word. He speaks in what he says. He speaks in what he does not say. And paradoxically, if we listen both to what God is saying and what he is not saying, we not only come to know God as he is, we come to know others as they are, and we come to know ourselves as we are. And, most mysterious of all, others come to know us in the ways we so deeply need to be known. As Maggie Ross says, there is a hidden glory radiating from each person which will reveal itself only to those who have been able to focus outward and wait in generosity, thus allowing their own hidden glory, hidden especially from themselves, to pour forth. As I mentioned a few weeks ago at Sanctuary, Julie and I had lunch recently at a restaurant in Tulsa during a downtime in the afternoon, and while we ate, we could not help but overhear a conversation between two young women seated across the room from us. Well, not quite a conversation. One of the two was allowed to speak only twice. She, twice. she asked exactly two one-line questions, and each time her friend interrupted her before she could finish the line. Afterward, on our way home, I said that it was obvious the woman was desperate to talk because she had some deep need to be known. But Julie rightly corrected me. 
Her talking was what kept her from being known. She could not be quiet long enough to be heard or to hear. That's the mysterious truth, I think, the mysterious truth. We are most fully known not when we say everything we think, but when we listen most attentively. Not when we bear our souls, but when we bear others' burdens. All that said, we do need to speak sometimes. But when we speak, as Paul says, we need to proclaim not ourselves, but Christ. And everything depends on that difference. What we say, or do not say, must arise not from our own fear, but from God's love at work in us. That sounds like a cliche, but not if we understand carefully what we're told in this story today. The disciples, the men on the mountain, the women in the garden, are terrified because they have been forced to confront limitations by their experience of God in his unlimitedness. Peter speaks because he wants to interrupt what is happening, and Mary does not speak because she cannot deal with the interruption that has happened. They speak from fear, not in some cliched sense, but the fear that comes when we have to wrestle with the fact of our mortality, the fact of our humanity, the fact of God's radical, infinite otherness. In the end, both Mary and Peter, the three men on the mountain and the three women in the, in the garden, want the same thing. They want what we want. They want to go on living in the world they've always known, with their circumstances changed, but without losing anything that matters to them. They don't want to be changed, at least not deeply, not fully. Like us, they don't know how to live into a future, the future of the new creation, if it overturns their past, if it calls into question every judgment they have made about themselves and about others, and that others have made about them. This is why Peter wants to make, to build familiar structures, to establish frameworks he understands and knows how to use. But God's word does not make, it creates. And so the more we become like God, the more our speech and our silence, including our listening in the silence, becomes creative, become creative in his creativity. As I said at the beginning, we become more like God as we look to Jesus, listening carefully to him, drinking in the details of his life and death as the gospel gives them to us. Beholding him, we start to discern the difference between making something for ourselves, something familiar and safe and useful, and creating something for others, something better than we could have known to ask for or desire, something beyond our use. We need to know this difference, and our neighbors, including our family and friends, as well as strangers and, our en strangers and enemies, they need us to know it too. They do not need us to make tabernacles for them or build shrines to them. They need us to hear them, especially the silent cries of their heart. When I was a young parent, I learned quickly to recognize the different cries of my children. I could tell the difference between panicked cries and cries of deep hurt or cries of fear. But as my kids have gotten older, I've learned that their deepest cries are cries that they cannot bring to voice, cries that they don't yet even know they're crying. And that, I think, is what we are called to give to others, that ear, 
the ministry of hearing the cries they don't even know they're making. We need to learn to recognize Christ in our neighbors and to see them in Christ. We need to see God's light on their faces, even when they cannot, and to honor the fact, and this I think is the most important point, to honor the fact that God already tabernacles in them. God already speaks in their words and draws near in their presence. They don't need us to make something for them or to make something of them. They need us to see they are transfigured in Christ and to respect that God is at work in them in the same ways that he is at work in Christ, in ways that are beyond our imagination and beyond our control. And so, in closing, I admit I don't know how to end. I don't know how to say what needs to be said to conclude what I've said about speaking in silence. And so probably what's best and what I intend to do is to simply stop talking, be quiet, and invite you to come with me into that quiet so the Spirit can teach us to listen. This is the word of the Lord.